All right, it's so, uh, so great to see everybody. Hopefully you're doing great. Happy Father's Day. Uh, we're just going to take, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been a good morning so far. Um, we're going to take a couple minutes, and this is a little out of the ordinary, but uh, many of you guys know the guys at the Bible Project. They're phenomenal. They make these short little videos on themes and books of the Bible. And this week they came out with a little film on, called The New Humanity. Hmm, interesting. Timely for us, I think. And this puts into perspective exactly where we are uh, and what we're kind of wrestling through in the letter of Ephesians. So go ahead and roll it and uh, check this out. In the story of the Bible, there are two realms. The earth, where we live, and the heavens, where God lives. And we've been talking about the spiritual beings. The Elohim, the divine council, angels and cherubim, the Satan and demons. And the last character we want to focus on is humanity. Now, humans aren't spiritual beings. In Genesis 1 and 2, they're made of the dirt, like the animals. But notice that God calls humans to become something more. He elevates them to live and rule in Eden, the place where heaven and earth are one. And they're invited to eat from the tree of life. And what does that mean, to eat of the tree of life? Well, it's an image of receiving God's own eternal life into yourself. It's about a whole new kind of existence. So wait, physical beings living forever. How could that even work? Well, somehow, sharing in God's life transforms our bodies so that we can inhabit heaven and earth at the same time. And it also transforms our imaginations so that we learn how to rule the world like God in the power of love. This is an amazing calling, but humanity is quickly deceived by a spiritual rebel. Yes, he lies to the humans, saying that they can rule and get eternal life on their own terms. And God exiles all of them from the garden. They're cut off from the source of true life. Evil and death now have power over us, and we live in a world of fear, self-preservation, and violence. But God promises that one day a human will come to defeat evil and death at their source and to open up a new way to a reunited heaven and earth. And this promise reaches its fulfillment in Jesus. Right, when we're introduced to Jesus, he's a human, but he's also way more. Yeah, we're told that in Jesus, God and humanity have become one so that he can restore the rest of humanity to its lost calling. And Jesus was tested by that same deceptive spiritual being, not in a garden, but out in the wilderness. Yeah, it tells Jesus the same lie. You could rule the whole world right now if you come under my authority and do things my way. But Jesus knew that that lie leads to death. So he rejected it and was victorious over the spiritual power of evil. And so then Jesus started announcing that God's heavenly rule was arriving here on earth through him. And so he went around confronting the power of death in his healings and his exorcisms. Jesus was opening the way back to eternal life, to rule with God and become new humans. Yes, he also confronted our imaginations by teaching how corrupt spiritual powers enslave whole communities with their lies. Lies like, my tribe is superior to your tribe. But Jesus said every human is an image of God. Or the lie that power comes through force. While Jesus taught that real power requires sacrifice and generosity. Or the lie that peace comes through violence. While he said that true peace comes through self-giving love. This is a new kind of humanity. Yeah, a humanity transformed by God's life and his love. And Jesus didn't just talk about these ideals. He lived them out. 
Yeah, exactly. He brought God's heavenly kingdom to Jerusalem to confront the powers. In fact, that's what got him arrested. Well, so maybe the way of Jesus can't win over evil. But from Jesus' point of view, his coming death was actually a battle. A battle? Yeah, not against humans, but against the real enemy, the spiritual powers that enslave us through their lies. Jesus gave his life and let evil do its worst. But God's love has the power to create life, even out of death. That's what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason Jesus is human, but a new kind of human. Yeah, when Jesus' followers met him alive from the dead, he had a transformed body that could live in heaven and earth at the same time. He's like a new category of human, one that can live and rule with God forever. Jesus is the new humanity that we're called to become. Right. He said that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And then he sent out his followers to announce that his eternal life is available to us now in the present. We can experience eternal life now? Well, Jesus said that eternal life is knowing this God of love so that our imaginations can be transformed as we're liberated to love God and to love our neighbor. And we trust that even if we die, God's love will transform our bodies and raise us up into the new creation. And that's how the story of the Bible ends. Yeah, the ending is a new beginning with Jesus and the new humanity ruling in a united heaven and earth together. So good, eh? Um, I think we're in a moment, actually, where artists like this are really the prophets of our day. These are the people that are speaking and really grabbing our attention. And I think of a moment uh, like this in which they put before us really the story that we're caught up in as we open up the letter of Ephesians. There's so much cosmic stuff happening in in this idea of salvation. And one of the things we want to grab a hold of as a community is just this idea that salvation, yes, is God saving us as individuals, but it's interesting that Ephesians 2 really mirrors a picture of salvation being personal, but then as well corporate, that God is bringing groups together, that there's something at a cosmic level that's going down here in Jesus redeeming and bringing in, remember the language here that Paul uses is that we're brought in. And that's actually language that was used of the Caesars. The Caesars and how they would spread their empire, the common phrase for Caesar was that he would bring in. But obviously we know that one of the things that happened through Caesar is it was through the shedding of blood, through power, through military conquest. And Jesus says that, listen, I've brought you in by my blood. And so, in the Western world in which we live, in North America, there's a lot of people pumped and jacked about evangelism, which is great and fantastic, and about saving souls, and I'm, I'm not, that's amazing, that's great. But that's only part of it. There's actually a larger thing going on here, and it's that God is rescuing all of humanity, and he's bringing groups together that once hated each other, and now he's bringing them together. Make sense? If you have a Bible and you want to read along, we're going to start Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, and it's just so great to be together. Just love you guys so much in these times as we come around the scripture, and I'm just going to read. There are no uh, slides this morning, but just follow along if you have a copy of the scriptures on your phone or a paper Bible, and uh, we'll jump in. This is what it says. Paul says this, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, 
Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by my revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles, re, sorry, revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are now heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith or allegiance in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory." beautiful piece of text. Now, have you ever known or had to keep a secret? Anybody? Part of the job, I didn't realize this, they don't teach you this in Bible college, but sometimes in ministry, as you kind of journey and walk with a community of people, sometimes you will know things before the entire community does or before it's Facebook official. Anybody? And um, so I didn't know this early on, but sometimes you know if people are engaged or are having babies before it's public, you know what I'm saying? And so a number of years ago, when a group of our friends, a part of this church and a part of Royal View as well, were having babies together, um, one of the things that was happening is people were be began to tell us, listen, we're having a child, nobody knows yet, so don't tell anybody. And I think, you know, we do a pretty good job at keeping things under wraps. And so we were out one evening with a bunch of friends, big long table at a restaurant, and we're all eating together. And by this point, really good friends of ours were having their first child, and we were just so thrilled. Everybody was excited. And I thought for sure, like, the cat was out of the bag, like everybody knew. And so we're eating away, and this girl who's having the baby, her Folks walk in to eat, just random that she's there with her husband and we're there all eating together and they, they walk in. And I didn't really know them that well. I was just getting to know them. And so they came and they're kind of over our shoulder and they start talking to us. And I turned to her and Heather's across from me and I turned to her and I said to the mom, you must be thrilled that you're having your first grand, like this was her, not only her oldest daughter's baby, this was like the first grandchild, the first grandchild, I think in the entire family. And I said, you just must be thrilled that this is like a new story for you guys, baby coming. And she looks at me and goes, what? 
And then she just continues to talk to people over our shoulders as we're like kind of eating. And I'm like, by this point, sinking in my chair and Heather is sweating, not from the food, across the table. Like I've screwed this family up, right? You know, this, the weight upon my shoulders. And so she is talking to people and then she turns to me and goes, just kidding. <laughs> and so friends, when I know a secret now, it's like, I don't care if it's on Facebook, I don't care where it is. In a social setting, in a public setting like this, I'm always making sure that it is out of the bag and somebody else is saying, that moment ruined me for life, probably in a good way because I think in Hitch, you've seen the movie, like a vault, right? Anybody with me? I'm a vault. Now here's the thing about the scriptures that's really unique and I know when we read large sections of texts like this, um, it's, it's wordy. It's a letter in the first century. Sometimes we read long texts at our community meal on Wednesdays, and sometimes you're just like, whoa, what is going on here? So I get it. And you may, you may have missed it, but over and over, Paul uses this word mystery or mysterion. He uses this word, which we would actually translate now as secret, when he talks about Jesus and his kingdom and his plan and his work in the world. It's a great mystery. It's a mysterion. It's a, it's a secret. Um, and he uses it here just a, a few times. He uses it actually four times in this text. He talks about the gospel and Jesus' work being a mystery. And one of the questions we have to ask is, are what, is what we caught up in as a community now thousands of years later, is it a secret? Because actually the, the writers, and you even see this in the Gospels, use this word mystery all over the place. Now some of you are sitting here going, only, and all of us, only by God's grace have we carved out time on a Sunday morning on Father's Day to be together as a community because of God's work within us. So there's part of it that is a mystery. The problem is, is sometimes people talk about the gospel and the ways of Jesus as something, because the word mystery is used, they talk of it as something that we can't comprehend. I just want to really show you quickly how, yes, this is a great mystery that we're caught up in, but one of the things that Jesus came to do was reveal this mystery. So even if you read, there's a, a really important parable. We're not going to turn there this morning, but in Mark chapter 4, there's this parable of the sower. Have you heard this before? Jesus tells a story about there's a farmer and he's spreading seed and some of it hits not so good soil, some of it hits soil that has thorns that grow up and quench it out, and then there's other seed that hits this really good soil, and I'm actually, anybody else planting grass right now? Oh yeah, it's, it's, not been, the great, it's been the worst spring ever for weather because it's been rainy, but any grass growers? Just me and Mark, I think, and Nate was saying he's growing grass too. Dad life right there, Father's Day, we're grass growers. What has happened to us? Anyways, that's for another time. But Jesus tells this great story, and then one of the things actually Jesus says, it's in Mark 4, he says this, Mark 4 verse 10, it says, when he was alone, the 12 disciples and the others around him came up to him and asked him, listen, why are you telling this in parables? And he told them this, Jesus said this, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Interesting. Jesus says, listen, the secret, the secret or the mystery of the kingdom has been given to you, but for everybody else, I have to tell in parables. 
Now, some, I think, have picked this up to say, okay, now this is like secret code stuff. So some of us, even before the foundation of the world, I have some Calvinist friends who would say, well, God reveals to some and he doesn't reveal to others. And if you win the salvation mystery lottery, you're in. And if you don't, you're not. And I, we just don't buy into that here. Uh, we love you, but we just don't buy, I just don't buy into that. Because, listen, verses later, listen to what Jesus said. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? And Jesus is looking for the answer, of course not. Instead, don't you put it on a stand? And then right here, Jesus is revealing his mission. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. And, and Jesus says, if anyone has ears, let them hear. Jesus is actually saying here, look at me. I'm the one that brings the mystery out into the light, and I am like, like a black light, right, revealing dust or lint in the dark. Have you seen this? If we were to turn all, it's hard to turn the lights off in here, but if you were in a dark room and you turn on a black light, there would be things revealed all around. Like the, the, like the red line surrounding you when you pee in the pool. I, apparently this isn't a thing. For years I thought if you, there's certain people who put things, if you peed in the pool, it would surround you with red. Apparently this is not a thing. Did you know that? Anyways, what Jesus is saying is, listen, I have come to reveal things. The mystery is revealed. Jesus, as the gospel, would, the gospel writers would put, is the full revelation of God. So if you want to know what the mystery is like, we look to Jesus, because he is the revelation of this kingdom. You following me? Then, and I don't want to get too far ahead of us, this word is used again when, when Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about marriage. Okay, so this is hilarious. Paul, in the writing, and we'll get there at some point, calls marriage a mega mystery. Now, where are my married people at? Come on, somebody. And, and, no? Okay, maybe it's just me. Love you, Heather. Um, he actually calls, he calls marriage a mega mysterion. He calls it this great mystery. But you know what's crazy? In the language, he calls it a mystery, but then what does he do? He doesn't leave us in the dark. Paul actually reveals through his writing what the secret or the mystery or the mega mystery to marriage is. And it's this one word that isn't so, a lot of people don't like in our, our culture right now, it's this word submission. The word upotasso, it's a compound word mashed together that liter literally means to bring under, to bring yourself under. Paul believes that marriage is a mystery. It's this great mystery. And then he goes on to say, and really give us the secret sauce to what marriage is, and we'll get there in a few weeks, but it's to place yourself under. And then he gives out the working implications of marriage and community together. And then it doesn't stop there. Paul calls marriage a mystery, and then he re reveals it even further by saying this. He says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So this is how the way marriage actually works itself out. Yes, it's a mega mystery, but the way it happens is we submit to one another out of reverence and fear. And then it's actually a picture. And Paul goes on and talks about this relationship, husband and wife, as being the picture in which reveals to us what Christ and the church are like. In other words... The way that marriage works is mutual submission, and this is also the way in which the Jesus community works in relationship to Jesus. The mystery is revealed. All over the place, we're getting pictures of the word mystery being used over and over, and then the mystery is revealed. And so what Paul does here in Ephesians 3 
is he reveals the mystery of Christ and what God is doing in the world. Let me read it again, verse 4. In reading this, he says, he says, then you will be able to understand my insight to the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So what Paul is saying is this. It was a mystery, but God has revealed to us, to me, this great mystery. And then listen to what Paul says. The mystery is this, that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. The mystery, my friends, is revealed. This great mystery is that through the cross and through this good news of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, as we talked last week, which really isn't our story much, but is huge in this moment, are brought together. And Gentile people now are heirs with the Jewish community. Now, this passes us by and we go, yeah, whatever. I'm thinking about lunch and I am too because it's Father's Day. Anybody with me? I'm going to kick my feet up in a few minutes too. I get it. You're thinking maybe about other things. But the weight of this that now Gentile people who are outside the covenant are brought in and they are heirs. Paul uses language here like citizens. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, if you weren't a citizen in the Roman Empire, it excluded you from rights and freedoms with, within the empire. To hold citizenship in that day was like, oh, everything. If you could get Roman citizenship, you had made it. And it was very class-driven, if you know the story at that time. And now Paul is saying, all of us together these things are made clear now to, to all of us, and they're revealed through a few things. One, the person of Jesus. So the great mystery is revealed through the teachings and life of Jesus, through the scripture, which we have as one beautiful, big, unified story, and then it's also revealed through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying here, and you know this, we give lots of room in this community for doubts and questioning. I think there's no question off limits. I think we need to bring everything before Jesus. And we create, I hope we create lots of space for that, especially in our communities. One of the things that we say is, that's a Wednesday evening discussion, and I love it. We're trying to create place and space for that. But you know, one of the things, and I'm not, certainly not saying that there's not room for doubt in all of this, but it is interesting that on this side of history, the mystery of God has been revealed to us. And this is why we have a strong commitment to the Gospels and looking to the life of Jesus and looking at narrative theology and how it all pieces together because this is how the mystery is revealed to us. You got this Old Testament story and they're waiting for a Messiah and no people kind of waiting, the Jewish people are waiting on the edge of their seat trying to figure it out. But now on this side of the story, we know that Jesus is the fullness of God. And this is why we have a strong commitment to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, which leads us to truth. The kingdom of God is a mystery that's been revealed through Jesus, the scripture, and the spirit. Probably the better question is, as humans now on this side of history, 2,000 years later, are we listening we don't ask that question a lot. Sometimes we want to figure God out and we want to wrestle through things, which I'm all for. But one of the things that I'm confronted with in this is, as Paul says, listen, the mystery is revealed, is am I, am I listening? Are we listening? Because we have everything we need. And this mystery here is that the, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heir together, heirs together with Jesus, members together in one body, 
and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. And the mystery is that God, through the gospel, has brought Jew and Gentile together. And the picture we get, just like we saw as God's work unfolds, is he's bringing everybody together as one new humanity. Not one new Israel, not one new Gentile community. The new community that lays their allegiance down and gives it to Jesus as cosmic king. And Gentiles are now citizens in the kingdom of God. And here Paul is saying that Gentiles are heirs, heirs in this kingdom, that everyone, one, one I think theologian put it best, we have all this theology here, and the, the, under it all, this is what it means, everybody's welcome. Everybody is now welcome into the kingdom as one new humanity. Guys, this is crazy. You're not wasting your time making an effort to be here this morning because God is building throughout the world one new humanity under his rule and reign. And I know it's lost on us a little bit because most of us are Gentiles in this place. And as we talked last week, we don't quite have the hostility, not, not at all, at least in our city and moment, that was uh, embedded in the first century in the time of Jesus and Paul. I said last week, I don't want to revisit everything from last week, but it was hostile. It was a hostile environment. And in many ways, in the Holy Land, it still is a hostile environment between Jews and Gentiles in many places and spaces. And one thing I said last week is sometimes we pick up the Bible and we want something for us, and I get that, but we have to remember it was first for, for them, and Paul is dealing with all sorts of things that we don't necessarily deal with right now in our moment. Like, we're not making people get circumcised to come into our church, <laughs> right? I hope not. Nobody's playing that. Are we okay? But this was... This was a thing in the first century as these identity markers for the Jewish community. They wanted to push it on all people. And Paul is now saying, listen, the mystery is revealed. Everybody is welcome and everybody's invited to the party. So the application can be a bit challenging because how do we apply this to us? We're not rolling with this. It's not really our problem. But I'll say this. I think we need to ask the question, what can we guard from as a community and as a church in things that could divide us. Like, Paul's probably not writing us a letter like thousands of years later about Jew Jewish and Gentile stuff. But I think the bigger picture is everybody's welcome, yet the human heart at times puts up barriers and walls to say, I want this just for me. This is what the Jewish community, they even had to have a council to let Gentile, like they had to get the church leaders together to make sure that everybody was on the same page, that this, this great news of the gospel of the kingdom was for everybody. And so Jewish and Gentile stuff isn't there for us, but I've just been wrestling all week about things in our own current moments that could be things that could be divisive. Like this, what about age? As I constantly run into people in the city that know what we're doing, other pastors, we just had a pastor's meeting, one of the things that I continually hear about our community is that, oh, you're the young church. You're the young church. And, well, I'm super proud. I am really proud because most churches in the city and in the Canadian context now, very few are reaching those between the ages of 20 and 40. And we're going to see huge shifts in the next 20 years because churches will die because they will get older. And so there's part of me that's really proud at, when I hear that at times, yeah, like we are reaching younger people, which is great. But I also think, and pride in the best way, but I also think it's something we need, that kind of language we need to guard from. Many of you, right? Like 
we're not, I don't want to be the young church. We never started this to be young or hip or cool or attract a certain age group. Uh, many of you know that I've, and Heather knows this, the last number of months, as I enter into the second half of my life, I'm now 36, whoa, crept up on me pretty quick. Um, I'm very fascinated now with the theology of aging and aging well. I think the Bible has a lot to say about it. And as I look now to the second half of my life, um, I'm very interested in living this journey in Jesus in the long road. And I think age is actually something we pray and hope that every age would come into this community and it would be a place of welcome. I recently heard a youth pastor a little while, uh, he said this, anyone over the age of 40 shouldn't be on the worship team, right? And so we do these weird things and try and make church young and hip and cool. And we are enamored right now in our cultural moment. But I just want to, I'm just, this would be something we need to guard ourselves from. We don't want to be the young church. We want to be the church for all people. You, you picking up what I'm putting down? And I just think it's important to wrestle, wrestle through this because especially as some of us age, we want to be here for the long haul. Some of us, all of us, just some of us. Some, some of us are trying to prevent it. Um, but as we look to the long road, just be reminded that that could be a divisive thing. We, this is why we invite everybody. We have the kids a central part of what we do here because we want this to be for everybody. What about this, though? Stage. You have age, then you have stage. Stages of life should not divide us. And the beauty of this community is what we're trying to build here is a multi-stage community. This is why we're very slow here to silo everybody into little ministries and, and different things because we want people to be drawn together. We're trying to be intentional, again, with having family services once in a while where your kids see you worship and engage community if you have them. Our co community groups continue to need to be a reflection of all stages of life where we can serve and lean our lives into each other. This is why I love our Wednesday community. Um, there's Different stages. It's not just all families, but I love the fact that single people are represented in our community and they don't have to be siloed into their own little thing. That's not, churches do that and that's not bad. But I love the fact that the single people in our community, what they mean to my kids, it's crazy. So age and stage, I think we really need to think deeply about these things not becoming uh, divisive. And I also think single people can learn a lot from those who are married and vice versa. And this was the thing. When I... In my 20s, when I knew I wanted to be married, I actually started to hang out with people who were married as a reflection in what they could lean into my life and show me and teach me, but I also believe it goes both ways. Or what about this? Age or stage, what about this? What about class? I believe that this is the one big thing we're gonna wrestle through in the next number of years in the North American context, <coughs> that the church needs to be a place for all classes. And I think churches in particular communities and neighborhoods are important, but it's interesting that sometimes the churches that are seen as growing are typically in more wealthy contexts. You know, people hear often that our gatherings are here downtown, and a lot of times people will assume and say things like, well, you must be like the church for homeless people. And I always think it's such an interesting thing 
Because what we're actually trying to create here is a place where those who live in the community and in the city here can join in together. But there's also people on the margin. Well, our, our hope is that a place and a space could be created here where those walls could be divided down and those who have a lot and those who don't could actually worship together. This is the one thing I think we're actually missing in London a little bit. So a church solely for marginalized people usually doesn't sustain, right? Could we be a community where we've dreamt, where the classes would collide together, where people would partake from the same table? So young professionals and students to kids, to those who may have a little or those who may have a lot, to those who are our brothers and sisters who are staying across the street at Salvation Army, that everybody could come together under one name, that we could be a community of all classes, all ages, all stages. You follow me? This is the hope. Like, we don't, we're not wrestling through Jewish and Gentile stuff, but God, make us this kind of people. Or what about this? What about race? Every race, tribe, and nation, our prayer is that would be, we would be welcome to worship together. You know, this, if the world's population was a village of 100 people, do you know that 60 of those people would be Asian? 16 would be from Africa? 10 would be from Europe, 9 would be from Latin America and the Caribbean, and then 5 of us would be from North America. Crazy, eh? And I just think about it. As Anglo, for most of us, Anglo-Western Americans, we would be the minority in the new earth. You know that? We would be in the minority. I know we, we roll where we're like... Uh, I know America, and especially North America, has a lot of power in our current context, but we would actually be in the minority. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's beautiful. And I just want to say this. There's going to be some soul in heaven. Anybody with me? I know. Uh, We love the the four-on-the-floor songs, like the Hillsong and Bethel music, but I just have a feeling in the new earth, it's not all going to be four-on-the-floor. Anybody with me? Anybody? Nobody's excited about that. I'm excited about that, right? And I love our context here, but let us be a people that invites every race, every person, no matter what tribe, nation, or tongue, to come and to worship. May the barriers come down. Will the walls of hostility come down? Are you with me, brothers and sisters? This is what the gospel does. It doesn't just save individuals from their sin. It brings all sorts of groups and classes and genders and people together that wouldn't normally be together. So what about this? What about relationships? One thing we don't have an honest conversation a lot of times about in the church is friendship. Um, I'm super pumped about our community, and there's a ton of people away this morning, but what I love is to see the little relationships and friendships that blossom all over the place. It's so cool. If you sat Heather and I down, this is, we just love, this is the joy of our lives. But I'll also say this, what we're doing as a community is actually greater than friendship. We love that friendship is cultivated, but greater than friendship, we actually have a common mission together that's unified under our allegiance in Jesus. And so that may, and sometimes we don't talk about this because sometimes people get certain expectations. That may mean that you're not BFF with everybody in the community, even the community that's smaller in size like ours, but there is a unity and commonality among us because we follow Jesus together. You feeling it? So I think that's actually one thing people need to learn. Sometimes there's expectations maybe to be, uh, to be best friends or BFF with everybody. I think we need to break down that expectation 
and understand that communitas, not community, but communitas, where one person enters into community and basically gives up their social status and rank for the greater of the community is how this works. And sometimes that goes beyond just being really good friends. You know? And I think one thing for us as we step into our future is those relationships, continuing to see those relationships cultivated in a beautiful way, but it's communitas. I humble myself and you humble yourself and you lay your life down for the greater good of the community. So we're not wrestling Jewish and Gentile stuff here, but I do think we need to think through age and race, stage of life, friendship, things in in our sphere that could become roadblocks to Jesus doing his reconciling work. Because listen to, what, listen to what Paul says. He talks about the gospel and the kingdom as a mystery, right? And then he says this, verse 10. He says, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Through who? Come on, help me. I know you're a quiet bunch. Through who? The church. Me and you. The way the, man, the way the world is going to know the goodness of God, this is why I always say people want worship, but they want it separate from the people of God. It doesn't work that way. Through you, the world will begin to see and know and taste and understand the manifold wisdom of God. Isn't that crazy? I love how, how one theologian, Daryl Bach, he says this. He says, the church is to be an audio-visual display of God's reconciling work. In this primary way, she testifies to God's grace and to God's wisdom. So Paul Paul encouraged living life in Christ in such a way that reconciliation is the dominant feature of church life. And so while our city will kind of silo at times into class, to age, to gender, to race, and to so on, the Jesus community as an explanation to the world of God's manifold wisdom, lives this different. Everybody's welcome. Doesn't matter who you are, we come together as this unique community under the rule and reign of Jesus. And we are the ones, brothers and sisters, that show the world the manifold wisdom of God. Um, Most of us will not forget where we were on June 13th, 2019. It's been a big week, my friends. I have a nine-year-old. Um, I have more than a nine-year-old, but it's been a real special time the last month with my nine-year-old. I was nine when Mike Timlin picked up that ball and threw it to Joe Carter in 1992 to first base when uh, the Blue Jays won their first World Series. I was 10 when Joe Carter got up to bat and hit that home run. And I have these moments and visuals with my own dad watching these games. And so the last number of weeks have been phenomenal with Judah, who's like sports fan. Uh, It's funny, all the kids in his class would fall asleep. He stayed up well past midnight, at least five or six nights. It's been unbelievable. And I'm a good dad. I keep telling you, you have the best dad in the world. Uh, I'm even letting him stay home to watch the parade tomorrow morning, which is, man, happy Father's Day. I'm just such a great guy. It's good. Um, you know, it's been a quite, quite a story and just all that's unfolded with the Toronto Raptors and their win. And it's so funny to watch because Thursday night, all of us were fans, right? All of us were drawn into this story. Now, let me ask you this. Show of hands, how many people in this room watch more than three Raptors games in the regular season? All right. More than eight. 
more than 15, right? So the hands go down and down and down. And here's the thing. True, you know, it's so cool to see people come on and come on the bandwagon, which is totally cool. Um, you know what Raptors fans who are, like, legit, like, watching every game didn't do to some of us that only watch a certain handful of hands? Oh, you can't get on the train, right? Did you see Toronto on Thursday night with thousands upon, maybe, we don't know how many thousands of people celebrating this great victory for the Toronto Raptors. And I get a sense, this may be the lamest illustration ever, but I do get a sense that we are these people that give allegiance to Jesus, that make known the manifold wisdom of God to the world. And here's the thing, people are going to join in. And they're going to join in. And they're going to join in as we continue as a group to make known the goodness of God and the gospel in the world and as our reconciliation together and what doesn't make sense as we come together and live this out, people are going to join in and join in and join in until God reconciles everything. And just like Raptors fans prating in the streets, Jesus will come and return and wipe every tear away. And, to, and we're not going to say in the end, oh, by the way, it's near, it, we're nearing the end and you can't join the team or you can't come on board. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. What we saw Thursday night is a great picture in longing. I've always had this feeling that sports is a longing when there's been a drought. I think of the Cubs back when they won and other teams throughout history, that this collective just sigh and almost like a groaning of celebration, this is what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. We long, we wait, we wait in anticipation, but in the meantime, one of the things that we're called to is to make this great mystery very clear for people. We have Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, we have the scripture, and we have the work of the Spirit. And I think one of the things Paul is calling this community in all the diverseness and all the things that are going on and Jews and Gentiles hating each other and you know, Jewish people thinking that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, which he was, and that it would only be for them, now this call to be together, let it be our call of reconciliation together. You with me, brothers and sisters? We are called to be this light. We are called to be this church that reveals the manifold wisdom. And so I want to call us and draw us into that. You with me?